All right, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Titus chapter 2 this morning. Titus 2, we'll look at the whole chapter, but especially verses 11 to 15. And if you weren't here last week, we started a new series that is really just an overview of the vision and mission of our church. So we're taking six, seven, eight weeks to just walk through what is it that brought us together as a church. And if that like sounds super boring to you and disconnected from your everyday life, then, uh, then hopefully this will show you that that is not the truth. And if the mission and vision of our church is disconnected from the average person's everyday life, then like we're totally missing the point. <laughs> And so that's one of the reasons why we're doing this series is to remind us of what it is that, that we are all about as followers of Jesus who are seeking to follow him in the stuff of everyday life. Now, a way that we've organized this from the beginning is so we could think about this in terms of five numbers, but we added a sixth one. So last week we did number one. I know we're memorizing a lot of stuff, but this might be helpful for you. One, we have one mission. It's to make the real Jesus known to the broken, burnout, and the bored. That's what we're all about. We have two motivations, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Gospel power and gospel purpose. We have three callings we live into. The great mandate, the great command, and the great commission. We have four identities that we seek to live out together. Disciples, family, servants, and missionaries. We have five rhythms that we want to bring into play in our everyday life and community life. That is to to bless others, to listen, to eat, to serve, or Sabbath, and to recreate together. I'll say more about that. And then we added six practices that we do together as a church that we feel like if we live out in missional community that we will grow as disciples. And that is our Sunday gathering, our family meal, our fight clubs, spirit-led prayer, and I forgot how many I counted off. That was just... That was just four. Okay, so our everyday mission and our common mission. So, so there we go. That gave me the six. All right. I thought I'd already said those, but evidently I hadn't. So that just gives you an overview of where we're going. So today we're on the two motivations that we talk about, and that is the power of the gospel and purpose of the gospel. Gospel power and gospel purpose. So if you'll stand for the reading of God's word, as we acknowledge that if I say a bunch of goofy stuff later, we're getting to hear the truth of God's word right now. So here we go. Titus 2, we're going to read 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Sanctify us, set us apart as your people for your glory in this world. We pray to God that you today that you would help us right now to just slow down, to pay attention to, to where we are so that we might be where you are. Holy Spirit, even now, help us to become present to, to where our bodies are, our feelings are, our thoughts are. And help us to be able to be present to where you are. We ask, Holy Spirit, now that you would shine the spotlight on Jesus so that he might disciple us. We ask now, Jesus, that you might lead us to the Father so that he might more deeply embrace us. And we pray that as we leave today, we would leave knowing more that this is not just true news, but it's true news and good news. Help us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. I read this week a report from the American Nurses Association. I know we have some nurses, healthcare people in here, so if this isn't true, you can come tell me later. But I did read it, that 
there was a health risk appraisal that showed that they needed to take more action to improve the health of nation, the nation's nurses. And why? The report showed in several key indicators that the health of United States nurses is often worse than that of the average American. That nurses are often have higher levels of stress, blood pressure, and get less sleep than the average American. Part of the reason of this, they said, is because healthcare requires 24-7 support. It requires constant focus, constant diligence. The demands of shift work exacerbate the health of nurse, nurses, and they say, in addition, hazards such as workplace violence, musculoskeletal injuries, and many other contributing factors to poor health. So as I heard this, I thought, nurses are the ones that have given themselves to the mission of healing. But it's really hard work. And so in the process, those who give themselves to the mission of healing can provide the, can become those who at the same time can become the most unhealthy. Now we're going to talk today about how guilt, shame, and fear are poor motivators, so that's not what I'm trying to do right now. What I'm trying to do is say, that can be us. Last week we talked about the mission of our church to go to the broken, the burnout, and the bored with the gospel of Jesus to proclaim and to display a gospel that is a forgiveness of healing and deliverance. That we want to reorient our lives to do that, not merely by attending a Sunday gathering, but by living a life that is on mission in community. But if we're not careful, we can find ourselves actually being those who are more unhealthy than we ever thought we would become. And I wonder this morning if you've ever felt that way as a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you've thought, why in the world should I be trying to bring healing to other people? Why should I keep trying? Why would I want to be a part of a church? We talked about last week how we don't believe that the way that we go about making disciples through missional communities is the only way. But if you're a part of this church even especially because of that, you might say, why did I sign up for this? Again, uh, I guess as the kids say, not throwing shade. Was that cool? But anyway, thank you, Alex. Uh, why did those thoughts come to my mind? Uh, you know, there's many places where you can just come and sit and listen and and do a few little things, and nobody's going to be calling you to more. You're not going to have to be called to share your story. You're not going to be called to open up your life. You're not going to be called to open up your home. You're not going to be called to, to serve people. I mean, there's going to be those options, right? But they're options. You can go to the Walmart of religious consumerism, right, and say, I'll take this, I'll take that. We'll come back to this in a minute. So why in the world am I doing this? And if you're not careful, you'll think, I actually think I'm getting more unhealthy. I think this view that all of life is worship, that all of life is mission, is leaving me, again, like at least some of these nurses in this story. And in the middle of that, we have to ask ourselves, what motivates us to keep going? I think sometimes we have a Nike Christianity. Just do it. Just do it. I'm just supposed to do it. I feel guilt if I don't do it. I feel shame if I don't do it. And I feel some sense of fear that if I don't do it or I don't do it right, that I won't really belong, that I'm being judged by people, that I'm being thought of as a lesser Christian. And so this is what leads to sometimes, again, that we become the older brother or the younger brother, if you weren't here last week. As we feel all that pressure from the family, and so we run, we withdraw, we say, I can't handle it. Or we feel all the pressure from the family and we're like, I'm going to be the best. And both ways are the ways we saw of missing what the Father has for us. You see, we can motivate ourselves and one another for the mission of Jesus in a way that actually misses the point of the mission. We say this often, but the same Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew that called us to be His disciples who gather around a table that has space for those who are on the margins 
The same Jesus who said, I call you, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, is the one who says, when you come and follow me, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Yes, this is, this is a way to live. This is a pull. This is a fight. This is a battle. This is a work. But yet I'm going to be yoked in that with you. So that we can carry this burden in a way that is light and not heavy, that is hard, but doesn't lead you to be unhealthy, where you are tired, but you learn to not be weary. We started our church, and we don't ever want to go away from this by saying we never want to assume the gospel. And one of the things that the enemy wants to do is to get us busy doing good things and make us assume the good news of the rest that Jesus comes to give us. Back to this vision before we get into the text of, of hospitals and nurses. One of the ways in those early days that we would talk about our church is we would talk about the difference between a hospital and a mobile clinic. Hospitals are good, right? Right? Hospitals are come and see. Hospitals are, we have good services that are help, will help you heal, will help you get strong. You come to us. But what we said from the start is we know that we live in a world, particularly in the religious South, where there's a lot of distrust of the hospitals. And so what we said, we, we want to be, it's not the only way, but we want to structure our church to be like the mobile clinics that go out and build trust that go out and bring hope and healing to people. People who wouldn't come, no matter how great our music is, no matter how great our kids' ministry is, no matter how slick our, our facilities are, nothing's wrong with those things. There's a lot of people in the religious South who are going to go to that, and praise be to God for those options. But we've said we want to be a people who go to those who won't come. But the only way that that type of mission can be sustained is if we find a motivation in the gospel. In the power of the gospel and the purpose of the gospel. So how do we see this today? The first thing we see is we can't let our dream be driven into the ditch by the default motivational settings of the human heart. We're going to say those default motivational settings are guilt, fear, and shame. We could go to the garden and show you that. We just don't have time to do it. But go read Genesis 1 and see if the, the default setting when sin enters the world, if there's not guilt, fear, and shame right there. It comes into our hearts as a part of the curse. And it's the way that we see the world, and it's the way that we seek to motivate ourselves and motivate others just naturally as people who have been separated from the loving embrace of the Father. So we can't let that be the case. So what is the vision? Well, if we were to read, we didn't read these verses, but I'm going to read some of them now. There's the gospel. Notice uh, Titus 2, chapter, one, chapter 2, verse 1. It's not on the screen, so you have to trust me if you don't have a Bible with you. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, I have to remember, when Paul's talking about sound doctrine here, there's not a lot of doctrinal statements going around. There's some debate. There might have been a couple small ones, like Philippians 2, 5 through 11, that the church had clung to. What he's talking about, the teaching of Jesus the doctrine, the teaching of the good news of the person and the work, the life, the death, the resurrection, the reign, and the return of Jesus. So he's saying, Titus, as you, as you help in establishing these churches, the gospel. It's a dream of the gospel. And then the rest of the text here talks about community. And he talks about all these different relationships, how older men are to relate with younger men, how older women are to relate with younger women. And in that culture, how, how in this, these household codes where there were still servants of various types how, and masters, how they were to relate with one another. So what is it? It was a vision of community. Right? There was this intergenerational community that was going to take place where people were going to live and watch one another and say, hey, this is how you parent. This is how you are married. This is how we, we relate even in, in a certain way in our job in our jobs, and our vocations. But it was a vision of like, wow, this is much more than just getting together and listening to, to a sermon and singing some songs with some people that my life is really disconnected with. And then there was this vision, not only of gospel and community, but of 
mission. So why do they do this? Verse 5 says one of the reasons that these relationships happen this way is so that the word of God might not be reviled. Verse 8 says one of the ways reasons we relate in this way is so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about the people of God. Verse 10 says that we do these things so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You see, there's this, there's this expectation that people who are not yet in the kingdom are going to be seeing the people be the kingdom. And it's going to cause them to ask for a gospel explanation. That's why we've always said we want to be the church in a way that demands a gospel explanation. We want people to say, why would y'all be doing that? You know there's easier ways to do this. You know that doesn't work, Right? Why would y'all just love each other? Why would y'all commit to, to live on mission together? And, and that's our dream. It's a beautiful dream. It's why so many of us are here, right? We, we've wanted to believe that when we look in the book of Acts, and there's a lot of messy stuff that happens in the book of Acts, but when we look at the pattern of the church, it's like, I actually want to try that. I want to do that. Where the life of the people of God is not constrained to a day of the week or a, or a piece of geography in the city, to personalities and to programs. And, and we don't have time this morning, but we've got to do that, haven't we? We've got to do that. It's been hard but we've actually done it. I mean, so many of you in here, you know each other's stories. So many of us in here have said, I, I've got to know people in one year more than I got to know them in 10 years in another setting. And I hope it's still our vision. I hope it is. And if it's not, then I think we just have to go back to the parable of the prodigal sons like we went to last week. And we've got to ask ourselves, where along the way did this become about something else in our hearts than experiencing what it means to come home to the Father and, and celebrate and throw a feast so that more younger and older sons might join in the party? J.D. Greer says it this way. We said, used this a lot early on, that some Christians see church as a cruise liner offering Christian luxuries for the whole family, sports, entertainment, child care services, business networking. They show up to church asking only, can this church improve my religious quality of life? Does it have good family ministry facilities? Does the pastor preach funny, time-conscious messages, you can laugh, that meet my felt needs? Do I like the music? And if their church ever ceases to cater to their preferences, well, there's lots of other cruise ships in the harbor. In fact, often they don't get involved. Often they'll get involved with three or four at once. After all, the music's great on Cruise Liner A. The kids enjoy the youth program at Cruise Liner B. And we do most of our fellowship and Bible study with friends at Cruise Liner C. And we occasionally podcast the angry young pastor down the road who tells the funny stories. That probably dates this a little bit, but we all know who he's talking about. All right. Other Christians believe their church is more like a battleship. The church is made for mission. And its success should be seen in how loudly and dramatically it fights for the mission. It's not a cruise liner. However, it implies that the church institution is what does the fighting. The role of the church members is to pay the pastors to find the targets and fire the guns each week as the people gather to watch. They see the programs, services, and ministries of the church as the primary instruments of mission. And he says, I'd like to suggest a third metaphor for the church, an aircraft carrier. Like battleships, aircraft carriers engage in the battle, but not in the same way. Aircraft carriers equip planes to carry the battle elsewhere. He says, my grandfather served on the USS Yorktown during World War II, and he explained to me that the last place an aircraft carrier ever wanted to find itself was engaged in battle on its own deck. In fact, anywhere near it. We used to watch old World War II movies together, the kind where they intersperse actual battle video clips, 
My grandpa once paused a movie to show me where he was standing on the deck when a plane crashed on the deck and broke in half. When you're on an aircraft carrier, he said, the goal is to keep the battle as far away from you as possible. You load up planes to carry the battle to the enemy. Churches that want to prevail against the gates of hell must learn to see themselves like aircraft carriers, not like battleships and certainly not like cruise liners. Members need to learn to share the gospel in the community and start ministries and mission, even churches in places without them. Churches must become discipleship factories, sending agencies that equip their members to take the battle to the enemy. So this is, this is what we've been talking about. What does it look like to do that? We've been doing that for a while, right? How do you motivate that? That's what we're talking about this morning. How do you motivate that and not be the younger brother that runs away or the older brother that stands with condemning judgment toward everyone that he does not think is doing it right? We cannot, we will, we will be, our dream will be driven into the ditch if our motivations, the way we motivate ourselves and the way we motivate our families, the way we motivate one another, slips into those default settings of fear, guilt, and shame. I'm not talking about, we could talk today about healthy fear, healthy guilt, and healthy shame. I'm talking about the unhealthy versions of these, the impairments of these. What does fear motivation sound like? It sounds like warnings, and it sounds like threats. And what fear motivation produces is it can produce compliance. You can get people to do the right thing with warnings and threats. What it cannot produce is conviction. Even research, I think the Bible teaches this. We could, we could go through it and talk about healthy fear, unhealthy fear, and all the things around that. But if you're wanting to talk about conviction, even healthy fear, fear of the Lord, is trust. It's rooted in trust. But even research external to the church will show that fear really doesn't get things done like we might think it would. If getting things done means getting people made into disciples. You see, fear can produce demands, but it can't produce disciples. Apprentices who live in the love of the triune God. Fear will drive us into the ditch. Guilt will drive us into the ditch. What's guilt motivation? Some of you remember this, right? Guilt motivation is when you should all over yourself, right? It's shoulding, right? It's life. This is, what I, this is the right thing to do. I should do this. I should do that. I should do that. Is it true? It can often be true, right? Guilt motivation can bring compliance, but it can't bring conviction. When guilt is a default motivator, it may work. But as the whole book of Galatians says, what it works in is you doing the works of the flesh. Paul says to them with much stronger words than I'm going to say here that might even challenge how we think about fear. He says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you who started with the Spirit now think you're going to finish with the flesh? That you who started by grace... Now think you're going to finish this through works. You could say it this way. You who at the beginning were motivated by love, now think you're going to make this last through legalism. When guilt is the motivator, the gospel becomes prologue, not power. It's for the past. The gospel becomes a message for other people, not for ourselves. Community becomes about comparison, turns into competition, and ends with condemnation, not family love. And mission becomes a burden, not a blessing. Mission, mission becomes something that you have to be constrained to do, not something that you are convicted to do. And then there's shame motivation. Shame motivation sounds like from within ourselves, well, I just can't do anything right, so why should I even try? Sounds like, what were you thinking? I can't believe you thought that. should have known better, you idiot. Man, God must be so disappointed in me. 
I can't do any better than this. What's wrong with me? And we say, we can say these to other people in our mind, like, what, what is wrong with you? And again, it can produce some measure of compliance, but it can't produce conviction. It can produce some measure of conformity. But what happens is we live with a slave mindset instead of a son mindset. Are you motivated yet? Fear, guilt, and shame can give you a shot in the arm, right? It can give you the adrenaline rush to get the next thing done. But it cannot bear the fruit of the Spirit. It can make us very well-behaved Pharisees. Or it can make us burn out broken younger brothers. So we've got to be learned to be driven by something else. We've got to be learned to be driven by the motivation first of gospel power. Now we're back to, to verse 11. Notice, after giving this vision of gospel community on mission, in verse 11 we begin with this word for, and we all have heard it until we're tired of hearing it. When you see the for, you need to ask what it's there for. What is it there for? Why are they to live this way? Why are they to, to live into this gospel community on mission? Why? He says, for the grace of God has appeared. This is why we do this. We don't do this out of guilt, fear, shame. We don't do this just because we're supposed to. We don't do this to find love, to be accepted, to belong, to be known. We do this because the grace of God has appeared. This grace has a name. His name is Jesus. We see here that the gospel is not the side note, it is the note that the gospel is not what gets us started on this journey of discipleship, of seeking to live as the church, to be the church, to experience the love of God and to help others experience it. Grace is from start to finish. It's very important to say this. Our structures as a church, our Sunday gathering, our fight clubs, our missional communities, these structures are not the good news. Jesus is the good news. We talked about this last week. There's wine, there's grape juice in the glass. This juice, this, this blood is the good news, not the glass. Our missional communities, our fight clubs, our, our structures, our Sunday gatherings, the way we do things is the glass. It matters that we understand what our glass is, but it's so much more important that we know what the gospel is. And the glass is nothing without the gospel. Nothing. It only serves the gospel. So we motivate by the reality that the grace of God supports everything in Christ, but we also motivate us, motivate one another by the fact that it saves us. Notice it's appeared bringing salvation for all people. You know, guilt motivation is just do this because you have to. Fear motivation is, is do this because you, you must. Or if you don't do this, this will happen. But a grace motivation is like, wow, salvation has appeared for everybody. It really has. And we motivate ourselves and one another into that. But what might surprise us is what verse 12 says, is that grace has not only appeared, but grace trains us. You see, so often when we think about grace, we only think of the pardon of grace. That is the forgiveness of sin that grace brings us. But when you read through the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, you see that grace is just as much the power that God gives us to obey the power that God gives us to live all that He commands as much as it is to pardon. This is why every week we re we're reminded of the new covenant as we come to the Lord's table that makes two promises. And it's the promises that grace provides for us. You are forgiven of your sin once and for all. But also you are given a new heart and you are given the Spirit of God to enable you to live out the life that God has given to you. That the gospel is not merely a gospel that we're saved for an afterlife, but that we are empowered for this life. That the kingdom of God is now. So we don't just say no, but it trains us to say yes. Notice we, we renounce ungodliness. 
worldly passions. We say no, but we say yes, it trains us to something, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Uh, One author has called a version of this that is somewhat controversial, Christian hedonism. So if hedonism is just living life for your pleasure, right? I could care less, right? It's all about me. Christian hedonism is every time I say yes to God, that sets me up for more joy in my life. That's not a pinprick fix that's going to leave me empty in the end, but is a pleasure that will unite me with a God and a gospel that lasts for all eternity. We also motivate by the grace and all of this that sustains us that is past, present, and future. We've got to direct our eyes toward this. Where do we see this in the text? We're going to circle back around this. This is important. Notice verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. You see that? There's a, there's a past tense where we look back to the historical reality that Jesus appeared as the grace of God. But there's a present aspect. We see this in verse 12. It's training us. Right? It's a present tense to this grace. It's not just grace past, it's grace present. But it's also grace future. Notice verse 13. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing. So he has appeared, he will appear. One fancy way of saying this is that the gospel is a gospel of tenses and moods. What do I mean by that? Is that we're called to see this gospel power that we have in terms of past, present, and future. That may be as clear so far, but it's also one of moods, and I didn't know anything about English. Trust me, I still don't. Y'all can tell in how I speak, but there's moods. Indicative is a mood, which is the mood of reality, right? Like this this is how it is. And then there's the subjunctive, which is a mood of maybe, you might say. And then there's an imperative, which is the mood of command or do this or you must. Now, the moods of the gospel, we're taught to see the indicative always comes before the imperative. That is, what is real comes before what we are called to live. Or what is true comes before what we are called to do. This is how Jesus lived and discipled. Even in his very baptism, we see before Jesus has done anything in his public ministry, what is the word that he receives from the Father? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, I hadn't done it. I hadn't did it yet. It's the logic of the gospel, right? Indicative before imperative. Wait, I hadn't started already. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. When Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount, I think sometimes we misread the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are not do this. The Beatitudes is this is true. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The indicative before the imperative. Could say so many more. I'm just going to skip all this from the Gospels. Oh, one more. Peter, right? You are the rock on whom I'll build my church. And we know how that story goes, right? Denials, betrayals, rebukes. But Jesus speaks the indicative before the imperative to motivate his disciples. The Apostle Paul, oh my goodness, just, just he structures almost whole letters like this. First two or three chapters are all about this is who God is and this is who you are before we get to any of the do this stuff. And 1 Corinthians will blow your mind. You'll think Paul is must be uh, fake, right? Because these people are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. There's incest. There's all kinds of things going on in the church. You know how that letter starts? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed you with all this grace. Y'all are so gifted. Y'all are held in God's hands. We don't have time to go read it, but just go read it. And you're thinking like, Paul, what are you talking about? But this is the logic 
of the gospel for the motivation of discipleship is we begin with who we are before we go to what we do. I've shared this illustration here so many times, but I've got to say it again in view of this revision series. But y'all have heard this before. One pastor, Harry Reader, said when he was 16 years old, his father bought him a car to auction, $75. Y'all probably remember this, right? Pink coral, right? But it was an old uh, state trooper interceptor car, if I'm saying that right. And he was embarrassed. He didn't want the car. Dad, all my friends are going to laugh at me. I can't drive this pink coral car. And he said, he, his, Harry said his dad looked at him and said, a, a poor ride's better than a proud walk. And so he, he drives the car. And he said what, would, what, what came to happen, though, is that all, he would pull up to the red light with his buddies, right, side by side in cars, and they would be laughing at his car because of the color of it and how it looked. But when they hit the gas, he left all his friends in the dust because there was power under the hood. Right? And this is, this is why we tell this all the time. We might not look like a lot sometimes, right? You're like me. You're looking in the mirror and you're like, what, who is this guy? What's going on here? But the reality of the gospel is there's power under the hood. The Holy Spirit of God abides and indwells within you and within us as His people. And we don't merely take this as just a moment of of comfort or inspiration, but it should be our motivation. The power of the gospel, Paul says in Romans 1, is salvation from first to last. The gospel is not just good news for unbelievers. It's good news for us every day. As has often been said, it's not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z. And if you lose that, you will lose yourself. You will lose all the power to do anything God has called you to do, to love your family, to love your church, to love your neighbors, to love the nations. We talk about these tenses of gospel power. And we, we have verses for all these, but just I'm going to read them. Ephesians 2, 5, and 8, right? That we, we say this, the past tense is, we have been saved from the penalty of sin for the purpose of being the dearly loved children of God. Now, as, as, as simple as that might sound, I just want you to imagine with me in your head, what if you really believe that? What if that truth were explosively alive in your heart when you just fell into that besetting sin again? That lust, that greed, that gluttony, that sloth, What if you really believed in that moment? I bear no penalty for this sin. All I bear right now is the love of the Father. How might that change how you feel, how you show up, and how you're able to love others? But the gospel also is, is that we are being saved. You could go read this in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, amongst other places. Is we are being saved from the power of sin so that we might do spirit-empowered good works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 say this as well. You might be like, okay, yeah, I know that. What if you really believe that? What if you really believe that sin has no authority in your life? Some of you at times probably feel helpless in the face of your sin. Like, this is just what... what it is. Why do I even try? Why do I still care? Do you believe that you have been saved or being saved from the power of sin for spirit-empowered good works? When you have that angry outburst at your spouse or your kids or your roommates, when nothing turns out as planned, but also we will be saved. 1 Peter 3, 5-7. 1 Peter 
1, 3 through 5 says this explicitly, that we will be saved. What will we be saved from? One day we will be saved from the very presence of sin for the purpose of enjoying God forever. Why is that such good news? Because one day this fight is going to be over. Isn't that good news? If you if you were in a struggle, a lifelong struggle that some of us are in, sometimes things that you're just, you know, you, you just can't help, right? It might be a disease or it might be a, a battle with a certain thing. I don't know. It's not going to last forever. And this gives us hope. Now, why do we say these things? What does this have to do with our motivation? It has everything to do with our motivation is instead of going to guilt, fear, or shame, what if we went to the realities of the gospel, the indicatives of the gospel, and we reminded ourselves of that, we reminded our spouse of that, our kids of that, our parents of that, our roommates of that, the people we're on mission to. Sinclair Ferguson said, said it this way, He says, so often in our preaching, and we could say this just in our discipleship of one another, our indicatives are not strong enough, great enough, holy enough, or gracious enough to sustain the power of the imperatives. If you want to change, if you want people around you to change, don't yell louder what they should do. Yell louder who they are in Christ. When you come before the Lord, if all your hearings is do, should, do, should, more, more, then I want to, maybe you're tuning into the evil spirit and not the spirit of God. Let's, let's hear the Father yelling over us like He yelled over Jesus, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased and see if that actually doesn't make you go live a more loving life. See if instead of just being a person who complies with things, you're actually a person now who lives with some sort of conviction for things. Just test God and see if grace doesn't work better than guilt this week in your life. Give yourself more grace. Give the people you live with and you work with and you love more grace and just see... Just see if that doesn't make your relationship better with God's self and others in your world. You see, we do not start or go on this journey saying, what would Jesus do? Again, not throwing shade. I was the guy who wore the bracelet. I still would. It's great. But we don't go win the power of what would Jesus do. We go in the power of what Jesus did. We go in the power of who we are because of what Jesus did because of who God is. These questions that we ask aren't like just picked out of nowhere. Who is God? What has He done for us in Christ? And who am I? We go there before we get to what should we do because if we just go from what does God say to what should we do, then we're just left with our own willpower and a legalism that cannot carry us when life is hard. Got to go to the next one. Gospel purpose. So we learn to be driven not by the default motivations of guilt, fear, and shame. We learn to be driven by the gospel power we have in Christ, but also by the gospel purpose. Notice verse 14. Who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Some of you in here have read the Old Testament, and if you have read the Old Testament, it should be things are ding in here. These are not new phrases. Redeem us from all unlawlessness. Purify himself. If you have a Bible and it has the little marks in it, it's going to take you down to the cross-references, and it's going to be Old Testament verses because this was language that was using of God to Israel. What Paul is doing here and what he does all the time, and it's what Jesus did, is he's not just giving them commands, he's connecting them to a larger story. He's, connect, he's not just saying, I want you to be a family on mission. 
He's saying, guess what? You've always been a part of the family on mission if you were in the people of God. This whole thing started with Abraham saying, I want you to go and be a blessing to the nations. This whole thing came out of you being called out of Egypt and being said, you will be a kingdom of priests who make my name great throughout the earth. And then he says to this young leader, declare these things, verse 15, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Now in context, what are these things? Grace. Grace. How are we going to motivate God's people? How are we going to motivate one another? With guilt, fear, and shame? No, the grace of God has appeared. And the grace of God trains us. Cassie tells me all the time, not too many sports illustrations, but here I go. All right, we're in a gym right now. So imagine that we're in the Boston Garden, right? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the Boston Celtics, all right? I would say the most storied franchise in sports history. That can be debated, right? They have the same number of championships as the Lakers, which I believe is 17. Now imagine if you're the coach of the Boston Celtics, and they're not doing particularly well, right? They're unmotivated. You know what you do as a coach? I've seen this in some movie somewhere, but I couldn't find it, so I'm just telling you how I'm thinking about it. So you walk, you take your team into that gym, don't you? And they look up and they see 17 championships. And you're not having to say a lot as a coach right now. Why? Because you're like, oh yeah, we're a part of that. That's the story we find ourselves in. And then you look at all the retired jerseys. I have to look because I looked this up. Guess what? 23. More than any other sports team in America. 23 retired jerseys. And who are you thinking about? Bob Cousy, Bill Russell, Larry Bird, Paul Pierce. And you're like, oh yeah, I'm a part of that. And then if you're the coach, what do you say? Look down. And you look down and you're wearing that, that green Boston Celtics jersey. And guess what? All of a sudden, you're, you're starting to feel like you're ready to practice. <laughs> right? You're not Allen Iverson. You're not like this practice right you're like let's practice let's practice let's play as as a coach for the boston celtics you really shouldn't have to guilt shame and fear people into working hard you just gotta every now and then remind them of who they are and what story they're a part of this is what the author of hebrews is doing in hebrews 11 that great hall of faith right is he's taking this persecuted church who, who doesn't know if can we keep going through the suffering? Can we keep living as a gospel of community on mission? It's just so hard. There's so much inside problems. There's so much outside pressure. And he puts them in the story. And he says, this is your story. And it means you're going to have to live by faith. But it's not a faith that's detached from a historical experience of the power of God. So how do we motivate one another ourselves? we got to get back in the story. Do you realize you're, you're in is what some people call the fifth act of the grand drama of history. And you're an actor that's been called onto the stage to play your role. When you show up, to this gathering to worship, when you show up in that fight club, when you show up at that family meal, when you show up to serve in that way, when you show up to your job, when you show up before your family, your friends, in that suite, in that dorm room, around that kitchen table, in that hallway, you are living in the theater of the glory of God. 
It's a story that's centered on this one who appeared. If we want to motivate one another, we don't have to use guilt, fear, or shame. We need to remind one another of the story we're in. That's why we come to the Lord's table every week. You know, this thing started a long, long time ago. And even though they didn't know it, those first Israelites who would have took that first Passover were pointing to the one who would come and who would live the life we couldn't live, who would die the death that we deserve to die and who would rise to give us the life that we were meant to live. So it can't just be a story. It has to be Jesus' story. It's like our little children's Bible we read so often. He's the Jesus storybook Bible, the hero of every story. And I wonder where you're at today. Again, no guilt, fear, shame. Is he the hero of your story? I remember someone who was going to make a big purchase one time. and It wasn't a good or bad thing, but I remember overhearing somebody else say to this person, it stuck with me. I can't even remember the whole thing, but this much did. They said, if you do that, what story does that tell? Or what story are you in? So what if we think about our lives like that? Imagine your life is a movie. And you're watching it. What would you do if this gospel stuff is true? As a church, as God's people, what do we want our story to be? I sat and listened to sermons. I studied my Bible with Christian friends. But the rest of my life looked just like the world. Or I lived a life that was ordinary in so many ways, but it was all wrapped up with this one I know as friend, Jesus. I think that's the movie we want to watch. The life we want to live. If we're to be this mobile clinic of the gospel, then the only fuel that will get us there is the gospel. Guilt, fear, and shame won't get us there, but the blood and the body will. And so this is why we come to this table. Another reason we do every week is just to be reminded of this new covenant promise that is ours. The pardon of grace. The power of grace. The power of grace, the purpose of grace. And it is ours in Jesus. So Father, we thank You now for this reminder of Your good news. And we pray as we come to the table now that we might taste and see that You are good. We thank You, God, that You are a Father who is not merely calling us to You, but as we come to the table, we see You running to us. And we thank You for this in Jesus' name. Amen.